following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. The, the message that I want to preach to you today comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. And we're going to just look at the first 14 verses because some of the things that are covered in the later verses I'm actually going to make reference to in the course of the message. Uh, but the title of the message is God's Plan for Us. And I'm not going to do a scripture reading, but we're going to actually read through all of the 14 verses over the course of the sermon. Um, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Okay. Lord, today we want to look at this difficult topic of your discipline and how we who are in Christ can understand what it means to be disciplined by you. And so we pray that you would open up our eyes to a deeper level of understanding of how you relate to us, and what it really means to be under the cross and yet still recognize that there are places where you are at work in our lives that we may struggle with and have difficulty even understanding what your purpose and your plan is. And so through the ministry of your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, open that up to us and give to us a heart of wisdom and understanding so that we can partner with what you're trying to do in our lives rather than fight against you. For we surrender ourselves to you in this time in Jesus' name. In the 19, uh, I mean, the 2014 movie Whiplash, I don't know if any of you have seen it, um, a gifted student named Andrew Neiman, uh, who attends the best music conservatory in the country, uh, is discovered by this famed teacher and conductor named Terrence uh, Fletcher. All of this is fictional. And so... Fletcher invites Neiman to join his prestigious studio band, which is the best band in the school. And he's a jazz drummer. He's a first-year student. Uh, and what begins as an apparently normal relationship uh, quickly turns into anything but a normal relationship as the true nature of this guy Fletcher gets revealed over the course of the movie. And so I just want to show you a scene from it. Uh, it's a little bit of an intense scene. I don't think there's anything inappropriate, but it's a bit intense. And so if you have children in here, uh, leave it to your discretion as to whether you want them here or not to see it. Um, but it, the clip only runs for a couple minutes, and then we'll go on. Okay, so let's go ahead and take a look at that clip. Maybe it's time to finally bring this home. What you weren't a part. Alternates, you want to clean the blood off my drum set? It's not a movie for the faint of heart. <laughs> and I, I realize often when I show movie clips, people go out and watch the movie the very next week. And I think it's actually a very powerful and a great movie. But just be forewarned, it's not an easy movie to watch. It's pretty intense, okay? It becomes clear very early in this film that Fletcher has these unorthodox teaching methods, to say the least. In fact, as the movie goes on, you discover that he emotionally manipulates and even terrorizes 
his students, pushing them beyond what anyone, any reasonable person would consider healthy boundaries. And the movie centers around this central question. Does it take a teacher like Fletcher to make a truly great musician? You know, is is this madness that this teacher displays necessary to produce greatness? Or in the end, is he nothing more than a sadistic, abusive person who ends up destroying his students' lives? That's the, the fundamental question that is being explored in this movie. And I want to ask you, what are your past experiences undergoing discipline? What was discipline like in the family that you grew up in? Were you disciplined as a student at school by teachers, by the school administration? Maybe most frightening, have you ever been disciplined at work because of your performance or mistakes that you made as an employee? I know that for some of you, discipline is like a dirty word because you've been on the receiving end of abusive discipline. Some of your parents may have argued with you that they were disciplining you for your own good when in truth, as far as you could tell, they were disciplining you more out of frustration or anger. But I don't think you need to have grown up in an abusive family to struggle with discipline because the truth is, I think none of us knows how to handle discipline really well. And to me, this is really where we need to get to is, I think, when it comes to God, I think a lot of us have this disturbing thought that maybe God is like that, Professor Fletcher. He's always disappointed with me. He's always angry at something I've done. He's always ready with his arm raised to strike me. I think I didn't get that promotion at work because I've barely been coming to church these days. I think I might have had that miscarriage because of the bitter thoughts I've been harboring in my heart against my mother. These are some pretty dark thoughts, aren't they? But the truth is, in my years of pastoral counseling, I've come to realize how many thoughts like this dominate the Christian mind. Anytime something doesn't go right in your life, anytime there is hardship, it only seems to confirm our worst fears about God, who seems always ready to punish us. And truth is, studying the book of Jeremiah doesn't exactly give you warm fuzzies about God, does it? In fact, it seems to fit right into this narrative of a God that is so harsh and quick to judge and always wanting to punish us. Today's message is about the discipline of God. After decades of warning the Israelites because they had turned their backs on him, God's judgment that Jeremiah has been predicting for years now has finally begun. King Jehoiakim refuses to pay tribute to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar sends the Babylonian armies to the gates of Jerusalem, and he lays siege to the city. And the city falls. After Jerusalem fell, Nebuchadnezzar takes thousands of the captive Jews, and he relocates them 700 miles across a difficult desert to the land of Babylon, where they are forced to live in exile. Now, 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar would once again attack Jerusalem. And this time, he would show no mercy. He would burn the city to the ground and leave it as a pile of rubble. And then he would take even more of the captured Jews and exile them. This is the second exile into Babylon. Jeremiah 29, the passage I'm going to preach today, takes place between these two exiles, between these two attacks that are separated by about 10 years. In order to cripple the nation of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar took the most important and influential citizens out of the city, the upper and middle class, the priesthood, the prophets, the leaders, the elders. And he left the poor, the beggars, the lepers, the the insignificant people behind as a remnant. What's interesting is Jeremiah gets left behind in Jerusalem. He doesn't get taken with the others to Babylon. It seems like by this point in his ministry, Jeremiah has become so rejected by his own people, he is so despised, so hated by everyone, that when the Babylonians look at him, they put him in that category of worthless people. (laughs) They say, he is not an important person, so just leave him with the beggars in Jerusalem. So he gets left behind. But what's interesting also is that even from this great distance, the shepherding heart of Jeremiah does not cease. His love for the people of God continues. And so he in Jerusalem, left behind, writes a series of letters to the exiles that are in Babylon. And Jeremiah 29 is the first of these letters that he will write to the exiles. What's also interesting is this. For the big chunk of the book, before judgment happens, the tone is undeniably harsh. Judgment, 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 wrath. And then the judgment happens. Jerusalem falls. Everything that God had warned comes to fruition. And you would think that in this moment of judgment, the tone would be ratcheted up even higher, like one great divine, I told you so, you know, yelling at the people going, now you're really going to get it from me. But something remarkable happens. When the judgment actually happens, the tone takes a surprising turn toward compassion and encouragement and love. And it kind of catches us off guard. Psalm 137 captures the state of mind of these exiled Jews who are forced to live in Babylon. This is what Psalm 137 says. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. 
They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This psalm doesn't leave much doubt as to how the Israelites felt about their captivity or the Babylonians who did this to them. They complained bitterly to God. And all they could think of was a way of getting out of this situation and getting back home to Israel where they belonged. It is in this context that Jeremiah sends his first letter to the exiles. And we're going to look starting with the first nine verses, and it reads like this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may hear sons, bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The first thing that we see in this letter that Jeremiah wrote is that God makes it clear that even if it were the, was the Babylonians who did all this to them, it was ultimately God who was orchestrating everything behind the scenes. You can look in verse 4, it says, to the exiles whom I sent into exile. And again in verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Saying, God was saying, it's not the Babylonians. Don't blame them. They are just my instrument. I am the one that did this to you. That's the beginning of wisdom is for you to understand that this is by my hand that you are suffering what you are suffering right now. And so out of that comes the central message of this letter, which is don't resist what is happening to you right now, but surrender to the process because it is discipline that you're going through right now. In essence, God says to his people, Settle down in this foreign land. 
because it's going to be a while before you get to come back home. I mentioned this last week, that Jeremiah was competing against a group of false prophets who were constantly giving false assurances to God's people, saying that everything is going to be okay, and even after Jerusalem falls and the Babylonians invade, they continue in their lies to their people. In Jeremiah 28, verse 1 to 3, it says, In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests, and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. Basically, these false priests gave their assurance to the people, take it easy, don't worry, I know this stinks right now, but within two years, you will be back home in Jerusalem, celebrating with your friends and family that you left behind. It's all going to be okay. God has broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. And that's what the people wanted to hear. You know, it's, it's this feeling that all of us have when we realize that we've been caught doing something wrong, right? And we know we're in trouble. Okay, God, we get it now. We realize we made a mistake. We get the point. We should have listened to Jeremiah. We were wrong. We learned our lesson. Now, bring us back home, (laughs) okay? Just let us go back home. But Jeremiah tells them in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. In other words, what God was saying through Jeremiah was this, The return is not going to be in your lifetime. In fact, it's not going to even happen in your children's lifetime. It's going to be your grandchildren that finally get to go back home to Jerusalem. So settle in for the ride because the season of discipline is going to take a while. The first point that I want to make is this. It takes time for God's discipline to accomplish its work in our lives. It takes time. We cannot rush the process. I think the truth is this. All of us live under this illusion that the battle has been won the instant that we realize what we've done wrong, right? That's what we think is the victory. But the truth is that just because you know you've done something wrong in your heads, it doesn't mean that your heart follows that truth, right? It doesn't mean that you actually have changed inside. And I think the truth is, we all know the guilt associated with being caught when you've done something wrong, right? When you feel like a secret has been exposed. Or when you're suffering the full weight of the consequences of the choices that you've made in your life and they all come crashing down on you. But that guilt that happens instantaneously is a lot different than the guilt of truly understanding what we've done wrong and are brokenhearted by it. That guilt, which leads to true repentance and heart change, often takes an extended period of time. 
You know, Betty and I dated for uh, 10 years, as many of you know. Um, this is us in college. Um, love that 80s hair <laughs> that Betty has. Um, and here's the truth, is that during much of those 10 years, I took her for granted. Um, what I mean by it is this, is whether it was school or church or the band I was playing in or even my other friendships, it seemed like Betty always got my leftovers of whatever energy and time that I had after those pursuits. Um, and it all came to a head during my first year in medical school when I traveled for about three months straight with this band and came home, and she basically confronted me, telling me that she was thinking about breaking up with me. I have actually never shared the story publicly. You guys are the first to hear about this, okay? And I, she blindsided me. I, I mean, I, I, in my head, we were going to get married no matter what, you know? But she actually said, I've been thinking long and hard this summer. And she, say, she said to me, I don't know if I still want to be in this relationship. And I panicked. And I freaked out. And I lavished her with attention <laughs> that fall. And I said to her everything that she longed to hear from me, of my undying love and my total devotion to her. And I was such a sensitive boyfriend at that point. And so we didn't break up. And you know the story. <laughs> we got married. But here is the truth. It actually took much longer for me to truly understand what Betty was trying to say to me that day. It took years into our marriage before I could look at the man in the mirror and understand what she was trying to say to me, of the way I was treating her. This is why the process of discipline takes time. The Israelites had strayed so far from God, and their hearts had changed so much that this idea of bringing his people back to himself to a place of total undivided devotion was not going to be easy to give up their idols, to truly say, God, you are everything. You are everything to me. God says, that's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a while for this change to happen. I think in the same way, sometimes God brings us through extended seasons of discipline to teach us lessons that we're often not very willing to learn. It's interesting that of all the ways that God could have disciplined his people, the way that he chose to do it was to send them to exile in a foreign land. And so that brings to me the second teaching point I want to bring out, which is this. God often uses exile as a form of discipline. God often uses exile as a form of discipline. Living in exile means living in a place where you don't want to be, right? It's a place where 
Nothing feels familiar or comfortable or maybe even safe. All the familiar landmarks are gone. The people are different. It's not home. I know that talking with some of you, that some of you feel like you're living in exile in this season of your life, even being here at ICC. I know that for some of you, you are not from Chicago. Chicago is not your home. And the adjustment to try to make Chicago your home has not been easy. Let's be honest, the weather stinks here. And the truth is, you find deep dish pizza, just be eh, you know. And you're sick and tired of hearing about the glory years of Michael Jordan, right? I mean, these are the things that you just don't care about, like we do as native Chicagoans. Some of you are from Chicago, but you're new to ICC. And coming to this church really represents being in exile because maybe for many of you, you grew up in a home church that you've left and it was unbelievably painful to leave that church. And you are trying really hard to adopt ICC as your church family, but it's been a struggle. The faces are different. The traditions are different. You don't get the inside jokes. There's no shared history. You see, this is what it means to be in exile. It's to be sort of stripped from you, of everything that you hold on to as dear, as familiar, as comfortable, as secure. And at times, this is what God will do to us. When I think about this exile theme, it's very similar to the wilderness themes that we find throughout the Bible of God taking a person out of their home and sending them into the wilderness. God taking us out of our comfort zones and bringing us to a place that is uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And here's the question. Why does God so often do this to his people? Why does he so often choose exile and wilderness as a form of discipline? I think it's because of this. As much as we love the comforts of home, home may not always be the best place to grow spiritually. Sometimes God needs to take away the comfort and familiarity of home in order to get our attention. Because the truth is, when we're at home, everything that we need is right there for us. And as a result, I think, we think, we don't need God very much in that comfort. Therefore, sometimes he needs to bring us to a place where we, he has our undivided attention and learn the things that he's trying to teach us. Eugene Peterson says this, Build houses and make yourselves at home. You are not camping. This is your home. Make yourself at home. This, this may not be your favorite place, but it is a place. Dig foundations. Construct the habitation. Develop the best environment for living that you can. If all you do is sit around and pine for the time you get back to Jerusalem, your present lives will be squalid and empty. Your life right now is every bit as valuable as it was when you were in Jerusalem and every bit as valuable as it will be when you get back to Jerusalem. Babylonian exile is not your choice, but it is what you are given. Build a Babylonian house and live in it as well as you are able. Jeremiah's letter is a rebuke and a challenge. Quit sitting around feeling sorry for yourselves. 
The aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and thoroughly as possible, to deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty, act out love. You didn't do it when you were in Jerusalem. Why don't you try doing it here in Babylon? You see, the Israelites were discontent and restless. They complained bitterly because they were forced into this exile. They hated Babylon. And their only thought was to get back home. But God told them, as much as you hate Babylon, this is by my design. I have brought you to this place so that in my place of choosing, you can rediscover what it means to be connected to me. And love me and live for me. As Peterson says, the goal of life is not maximal comfort and security. It's to be in that very place where God can deal with us in his love as he wants to. And that's the last point I want to make is this, that God does discipline us always out of love. Out of love. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 to 14, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I sent you into exile. You know, this Jeremiah 29, 11 is an inspirational life verse for many Christians. Any of you here want to admit that? <laughs> you will find it in posters in Christian bookstores and written on plaques hanging on people's houses always with a waterfall or an eagle or a deer or something like that, right? I know the plans that I have for you. And we claim that promise. We claim that promise all the time. But it's important to remember the original context within which these words were given to God's people. These words were spoken to a group of people who were experiencing great suffering, exiled to a foreign country because of God's judgment. And many of them struggled to say, how could God be in any of this? All of these horrible things that we're experiencing. You see, they had a very binary view of the world. If God is with us, then everything will go good with us. It is the life of blessing. And if things are not going well in my life, well, it can only mean one thing, that God has abandoned us. But as these words of Jeremiah reveal, we are invited to a much deeper level of understanding of what it means when God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good, plans for hope, plans to prosper you. And even within that plan of love can be a place of discipline. You see, for the Jews, all that mattered was getting back home. All that mattered was the comfort of home. But for God, what mattered most was the condition of their hearts and their relationship to him. And so 
God assures them, even in what you are suffering right now, I have not abandoned you. I have not left you. In fact, this is the very evidence that I love you, is that I love you enough to discipline you. Even living as foreigners in this foreign land, as captives, as exiles, you can still experience a life of blessing. It's not as if all hope is lost because you're in Babylon. Discover a whole new hope by coming back to me in this foreign land. What Jeremiah is saying is in these words is the end result of everything that I'm doing in your life is to bring your heart back to me where it belongs. Because that is the most important good in your life, whether you understand that or not. Not your comfort. Not returning to the life as it used to be, those good old days. But it is the place where you meet God in his rawness and encounter the living God in all of his love for you, his jealous love for you. Well, what does all of this mean for us living today? I want to say this. If you're a Christian who believes in Jesus Christ and you've been saved by his blood, what the Lord's discipline does not mean is that whenever something bad happens to you, it is because God is punishing you for the wrong you've done. I kind of gave you examples of that mentality earlier. I think I've got sick because I've been watching some stuff on TV that I know I shouldn't be watching. I'm afraid that God is going to take away my job because I haven't been tithing. You know this mentality? It is in every one of us. I'm a pastor and I've been a Christian for decades. I even continue to struggle with this mentality of a tit-for-tat God who punishes us when we do something wrong. The gospel makes it absolutely clear that on the cross, Jesus took our punishment upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so if we believe that Jesus took our guilt on the cross, we never have to live in that fear of being punished for our sins. I don't think most Christians understand what a liberating freedom that is. Do you know the joy of that freedom? That even when you fail, you don't suffer the consequences of that failure. Because Christ has taken that on himself, on the cross. There isn't a hand raised ready to rack you. Because that hand went against the Son of God on the cross. And so, let me say this. When you encounter difficulties and hardships in your life, I don't think it's healthy or particularly helpful to try to correlate that pain with something earlier in your life that you did wrong. I I don't think that really is a healthy approach. What we're invited to as believers in Jesus Christ is an entirely new understanding of the discipline of God. Not as a form of punishment against wrongdoing, 
but an expression of love because of what God is trying to do in our lives to perfect us. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Do you see what Paul is saying about the connection between our justification by faith and living in grace and our view of our sufferings as a result of that? Therefore, as I live in this grace that God has given me, I glory in my sufferings because I realize this isn't God's punishment on me, but it is His love expressed toward me as He is perfecting me, building perseverance in me, growing my character so that ultimately that character would produce the hope of glory that I long for in my life. And what a liberating life that is compared to always cowering under the hand of God, fearing that everything bad is about punishment. And to say, God is for my good, always, always, it is for my good. Hebrews 12, verse 7 to 11, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God may bring hardship into your life, but it is not because of a past sin. It is not karma. It is not justice. That justice has already been dealt with on the cross. It is always because his desire continually for you is to draw you closer to himself in love. And so what I'm offering to you this day is every time you go through a hardship, ask yourself, how can I draw closer to God through this? I want to make a few other practical suggestions is It's okay to pray for relief when you're in pain. But let that not be your only prayer. And that's applying to yourself as well as when you pray for other people, especially when we pray for other people. When we see a friend that we care about in pain, (laughs) it's just natural to say, relieve that suffering God. Bring them comfort. And it's good to pray that prayer. It's an act of compassion to pray that prayer for relief. But recognize that there may be a place of a more difficult prayer. 
whatever you're trying to do in this person's life, in this season of their life, even the purpose of this pain, accomplish that purpose, God, in them. Let your will be done. Let me just close with this too. Be aware of the moments when God may bring you to a place of exile and wilderness. It could be a physical relocation because of a job opportunity. It could be a a relationship that is imploded in your face and you find yourself in the lonely desert of lost relationships. It could be an entire life imploding because of choices that you've made. I don't know. But the truth is all of us will go through seasons of exile and wilderness in our life. And the most natural instinct in that wilderness is to complain bitterly and do everything we can to get out of it and find the comfort of home once again. But could I offer you that maybe that exile is by God's design? Maybe there is something that he is trying to do in your life through that season of wilderness out of his love for you. Let me close with a final quote from Peterson. The violent dislocation of the exile shook them out of their comfortable but reality-distorting assumptions and allowed them to see the depths and heights that they had never even imagined before. They lost everything that they thought was important and found what was important. They found God. When the superfluous is stripped away, we find the essential. And the essential is God. Normal life is full of distractions and irrelevancies. Then catastrophe, dislocation, exile, illness, accident, job loss, divorce, death. The reality of our lives is rearranged without anyone consulting us or waiting for our permission. We are no longer at home. All of us are given moments, days, months, years of exile. What will we do with them? Wish we were someplace else? Complain? Escape into fantasies? Drug ourselves into oblivion? Or build and plant and marry and seek the shalom of the place we inhabit and the place we are with? Exile reveals what really matters and frees us to pursue what really matters, which is to seek the Lord with all our hearts. Let's pray. This is a communion Sunday, and in a little bit, we're going to come to this Lord's table to take the bread, to take the cup. And I want us to prepare our hearts to receive God's spiritual food. So would you just pray for a minute right now before the Lord? The title of last Sunday's sermon was The Severe Love of God, and I think today's message builds on that theme. God is jealous for you. God is so jealous for you. And maybe you can look at that jealousy and say, well, what kind of way is that to treat a person? But God is jealous for you because he knows he is the fount of life. He knows that in him is the purpose and the meaning of our entire existence. That is why he is jealous for you. And in that jealousy is your good. And the truth is sometimes the comforts of home numb us into a place of complacency. In that very comfort and security of the life that we built around ourselves, we have forgotten God. And God says, I will do what I must do in your life to bring you back to me, the fountain of life. 
And I know it hurts. I know the pain sometimes seems unbearable. But understand that this is not punishment. It is my love for you, out of which I am doing this in your life. So submit to that. Surrender to the process. And seek me with all of your heart in this place of exile. Would you just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team will come to lead us in one song of response before we go to the Lord's table.